anything that's said. There's no quiz, no grades, um, but rather listen to what might be a reminder to your heart, to your wisdom of what you already know to be true. The rest of it you can let go by. So this is Memorial Day weekend, commemoration of the memorial of those who fought in wars and died. And um, I wanted to start with a poem, actually, and then some stories. And I've got a lot of stories and things to tell. We'll see where it goes. Um, this is a poem by Lawrence Turnour called The Sleepless Ones. What if all the people who could not sleep at two or three or four in the morning left their houses and went to the parks? What if hundreds, thousands, millions went in their solitude like a stream and each told their story? What if there were old women fearful if they slept they would die and young women unable to conceive and husbands having affairs? and children fearful of failing, and fathers worried about paying bills, and women having business troubles, and men unlucky in love, and those that were in physical pain, and those who were guilty. What if they all left their houses like a stream, and the moon illuminated their way, and they came, each one, to tell their stories? Would these be the more troubled of humanity, or would these be the more passionate of this world, or those who need to create to live? Or would these be the lonely ones? And I ask you, if they all came to the parks at night and told their stories, would the sun on rising be more radiant? And again I ask you, would they embrace? And in Memorial Day, we honor those who've given their lives in battles and wars. And if you go to the military cemetery, there are these long rows of identical white stones with names of young people whose lives were cut short like that. Um, so mysterious um, that we still do this. It's pr pretty barbaric, really. It is, and it's not to dishonor those who died, but there's something kind of wanting our attention in this as human beings. As General Omar Bradley, who had been the chairman of his Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, we're a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. That some things have been developed, marvelously, our technologies, um, but they haven't stopped continuing war and racism and and uh, environmental destruction. Um, the technologies don't do it. I have this cartoon from the New Yorker that shows these two generals striding along the halls of the Pentagon with all their medals and so forth. And one says to the, the other, it really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. But my colleague and friend, Michael Mead, with whom I've worked for many years, has been holding retreats for returning vets. And there are 
more than a million people coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq, more than a million. And his retreats are places of ritual and listening and honoring. Um, The kind of honoring, I guess, this is all connected with the poem I just read. And sometimes I tell this story of working with Michael. We've done retreats for young men coming out of the inner cities, out of prison, out of juvenile hall, out of, out of gang life, a lot of gang kids. And they'll come in and they'll sit in the back of the room and pull their hoods up over their heads or their hats back and like, you're going to talk about meditation or poetry or shit like that. Come on, man, you know, give me something I can use. And then we'll take a table and light a candle and put the candle in the middle of the table and say we can't start because not everyone is in the room who is actually, who belongs here. So would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who died and put, their, put it on the table and say their name? You know, and this is for RJ and Tiny and Pedro and, you know, all of a sudden some of these guys come back and their hands are full of stones from this undeclared war in the streets. And all of a sudden, just that simple gesture of lighting a candle and saying, you can say the name, um, and the room becomes a temple. And they realize this is a place we can tell the truth. And the same happens in these retreats with Michael and the vets who come, because um, there really isn't a place for people, especially combat vets, to tell what happened. It's too terrible, and the stories are not, this is what I saw, and these are the amazing things that happened, and these are the terrible things that happened to me or happened to people around me. Those are hard enough. But the stories that are the hardest ones to tell are, this is what I did. Because those really weigh on the soul of a human being. And you don't know how to tell your family or your children and you have to have some place to say, this is what I was thrown into and what was asked of me and what I did. So like those sleepless ones who come and tell their stories, there's something so profoundly healing and necessary for us as human beings to listen to one another. And the real question is not the fact that there continues to be the insanity of warfare. Plato said at one point, only the dead know the end of war, which is a rather dire but so far accurate description, isn't it? But what would be a better game than war? Because we do have a competitive impulse in us. We do, you know, and we have that survival place of, you know, different than the people in the next cave or the next tribe or something. It's, it's really early in the nervous system and it's there. Um, but what would it mean for us to learn that hatred doesn't end by hatred, that by love alone is hatred healed. And what would it mean to listen to one another in a different way? So Marshall Rosenberg at Berkeley, who runs the nonviolent communication in Berkeley, who, who's developed this whole art of nonviolent communication and has worked in Africa and Asia and Latin America, all around places. Most of the work is just getting people to sit down and listen to each other about what their fears are and what they need 
I need security. I need to feel that my family is safe. And when people can really listen to one another, a lot of the dilemmas that go into creating war and conflict start to get solved. I remember being in Palestine and Israel a few years ago, visiting with or working with some peace groups and went to the Sulkita, which was this group that had bring, was bringing teenagers from Palestine and Israel together over three years, 14, 15, 16-year-old. So they got to know one another very closely over this period of time. And this was the first time that they'd brought their parents together. And it was in Israel that they got permits for these Palestinian families to come into Israel. And I remember the presentations of the kids. The kids were all really connected and the parents were like looking, is this okay, you know? It scared them in some way. And then sitting in the circle with these teenagers who had bonded very deeply and their parents, and, and one Palestinian family next to me, this, this woman, she said to me, oh, I forgot the Israelis had mothers too. I've only seen soldiers for the last 15 years. I forgot they all had mothers too. And it was, she was weeping when she said it, I forgot. So this is the kind of question that's asked of us. Um, how do we approach our human incarnation and our predicament? Yes, we honor those who defended us in certain ways. Um, and really respectfully so. Um, but is this, you know, is this how we're going to go forward as human beings? And what is your and my relation to this? Because one of the interesting things is that um, before a war in America, and I'm sorry to say we're a pretty warlike nation, we've been pretty much having continual war since, I don't know, certainly Teddy Roosevelt, a hundred years plus. We have. Um, before we go to war, the public opinion polls are 35% for war, 65% against it. The minute the president says, we're going to war, it reverses. And 85% say, yeah, go get them, or whatever, sort of rally behind it. What is that in us? So I raise these not as a judgment, because it's not them, it's us, in some very deep way. And when you come into meditation, my teacher Ajahn Chah called meditation stopping the war. Take a cup of tea and stop the war. You know, there's so many things we're in battle with, and battle with how things should be, and how other people should be, and the way the world should be. And it's finally you take your seat, and you stop the war with yourself, with your own mind and heart, and then you find a way to stop the war with others. Does that make sense to you? Nobody knows the age of the human race, but everybody agrees that it's old enough to know better. <laughs> Martin Luther King, where are you, Martin? Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal rejection of poverty, racism, militarism, 
This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, nation, and is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love of human beings and the earth. And when I speak of love, I'm speaking of that undying force which all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle. Love is the key that unlocks the door that leads to our freedom. So it's a kind of revolution Memorial Day asks of us in some profound way. When I was in Vietnam in 1969, um, during the war, uh, I went actually to go and spend some time in a monastery there. I was a Buddhist monk in Thailand and had been working on medical teams in the Mekong River Valley in that period and before I became uh, a monk. I went to this monastery of the coconut monk, he was called, because he lived primarily on coconuts. Um, and he had an island in the Mekong Delta. Um, and so to get out to his monastery, I had to take first a bus and then some boats. And it was a real active war zone. There were helicopter gunships and firefights and stuff like that. And in the middle of it was his island, a monastery, maybe 20 acres or something like that. Um, and the monks would greet you when your boat pulled up, and they wore these beautiful Vietnamese Buddhist monks' robes. And on them was sewn a patch with a broken rifle, like a broken M16 or AK-47 broken in half. And it said, in six languages, we will fight no more. It was kind of a sanctuary of peace. And at one end of the island there was a hill, not a very big one, and I was walking around the monastery. And on the top of that hill was a... 30 or 40 foot high standing statue of the Buddha. And next to him, equally high, was a 30 or 40 foot standing statue of Jesus. And they had their arms around each other's shoulders. It was really fantastic. And it was as if there's the helicopter gunships and here's the battle and so forth. It's as if they were standing there brothers and saying, you know, there is another way. And this island was really an island of peace in the middle of that war. So then the question that that abbot asked of all of us is how do you make yourself the island of peace so that you begin to transform the world around you and transform what you touch? The practice of mindfulness, which is a loving attention to what is, um, is the gateway to that kind of peace. Um, mindfulness is a healing, mindfulness is listening, mindfulness has love or compassion in it. It is an, it is an attention like that story that I started with. Uh, what if all those who couldn't sleep came out to the park and told their stories? What if the vets came home? And not only do they tell the stories to one another, but the end of these vet retreats then, and there was, we had one in Mill Valley a few weeks ago, um, then they come up in front in a church or a hall or whatever we rent, and their families and communities come, and they stand up and they read their story or they tell their poem, and they let themselves speak what's been buried in their heart and be witnessed. 
and honored and bowed to and sung to and welcomed back. Um, they tell what they have to tell and then they're given a welcome home. So there's something so profound about listening to one another in a deep way or listening to ourselves, which is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is a kind of deep listening and from it uh, a healing takes place um, because we reconnect with our bodies or our feelings or with one another. So I have a story to read you, one of my favorite stories. Um, and in recent years, well, I've met him other times, but I'll tell about that later. This is a story about Yesha Dundon. Um, and it's written by uh, a man who's a surgeon, um, Richard Selzer, a surgeon at Yale University Medical School. So relax, it's a little bit of a long story, but a good one. Not quite your bedtime story, but close. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, read an announcement, Yeshe Dundon will make rounds at six o'clock on the morning of June 10th. The particulars were then given, followed by the notation, Yeshe Dundon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I'm not so leathery a skeptic that I would ignore an emissary from the gods. Thus, on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in the hall around the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. <laughs> At precisely six o'clock, he materializes a short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon. His scalp is shaven, and the only visible hair is a scanty black line over each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshe Dundon, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is unknown to Yeshe Dundon as it is, um, excuse me, as it is to us. The examination of the patient will take place in our presence after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshe Dundon will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, prayer, and meditation. I, having breakfasted well and rushed to the hospital, <laughs> given no thought to my soul, glanced furtively at my fellow doctors. Suddenly we seem a rather soiled and uncouth lot. <laughs> the patient had been awakened early and told that she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh, fresh specimen of urine. So when we entered her room, the woman showed no surprise. She had long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. This was to be but another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yeshe Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart, watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her supine form. I too study her. No physical sign or obvious symptom give a clue to the nature of her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own, and now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn into the collar of his robe 
His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down to this one purpose as if a ritual. And from the foot of the bed where I stand, it's as though he and the patient have entered a special place of apartness across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests her head back on the pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sinks back once more. I can't see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. And all at once I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshe Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated thousands of pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshe Dundon straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Yeshe Dundon pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with two sticks for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times, sets the bowl down and turns to leave. All the while, he's not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice at once urgent and serene, thank you, doctor, thank you, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist as though to recapture something that had visited there. Yeshe Dundon turns back for a moment to gaze at her, then steps into the corridor, rounds her at an end. We're seated once more in the conference room. Yeshe Dundon speaks now for the first time in soft Tibetan sounds, barely begun when the young interpreter begins to translate in tandem a bilingual fugue like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land, flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and now is silent. May we have the diagnosis, a professor asks. The host of these rounds, the man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, he says. Interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened from before birth. Through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So, here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor, he is priest.
I know the doctor to the gods is pure, pure healing, whereas the doctor to man stumbles, most often wounds, his patient must die as must he. But now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sound of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself as if touched by something divine. So there is something about attention, whether it's to one another in conversation, to the needs of one another that Marshall Rosenberg is teaching in nonviolent communication between warring groups of religious or tribal or political factions, or even the attention we give to ourselves, to our own bodies, to our feelings and hearts, to our mind, that in the deep listening itself is healing. Because as I said, when we started the evening, meditation isn't so much a self-improvement project. Most of you know that passage I read from the novelist Florida Scott Maxwell, where she writes, no matter how old a mother is, she looks at her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. (laughs) You know, we internalize that somehow and think, all right, now I'll make myself better. But the real depth of meditation, and it doesn't take a long time, it's coming and sitting and finding your breath and beginning to pay attention, is that of listening listening to what's actually so in the reality of the present and in the mystery of this human incarnation, which you're in and kind of forget that you kind of got this weird body that somehow you got born into for a while. But only for a while, remember. You rent it and you have to return it. It's like Avis or Hertz, right? You can insure it, but still, you got to return it at some point. And when you do learn to listen, there opens in you a mysterious and wonderful capacity. And it's the capacity that we have um, to be present for the whole, well, what Zorba called the whole catastrophe. The whole, you know, joy and sorrow and tainted glory of humanity that make up our life. Because if we can't be present for it, for ourselves, one another, then we run around and, you know, distract ourselves. And we're a great distraction culture, if not an addicted society, as some people say, you know. Go online, turn on the television, eat something, you know, do anything but actually be with yourself, with your longings and your love and your creativity and your loneliness and your fears and your hopes. So there's something profoundly demanding and at the same time revolutionary about listening and being present. I remember sitting with my sister-in-law, Esther, in the last years of her chemo treatment for breast cancer before she died. And she talked about how it was, she would go and get her chemo and it felt like fire was being put into her body and it was like hell. 
And we sat together for a time, and I had her close her eyes and feel all of that, and said, let's work with it as a practice. She was a practitioner. And let yourself feel it and let the fire just pour through your body. And without any resistance, just, and she said, oh, pain. And I said, let the pain pour through your body. And it did. And she sat and let it all pour through. And she said, it's changing. I said, tell me how it's changing. She said, somehow at first I resisted it like it was going to kill me. And now it feels like it's a purification, something I have to go through that's cleansing every part of my body. And she sat and sat, and all of a sudden she said, it's changing color. It's turning into this green, luminous light that's pouring through me. And I realized whether I live or die, that I have this life that wants to live through me. And I'm going to live every day of it that I have. And it was so beautiful, because the suffering that she was in somehow changed by her willingness to open to it. You understand? So mindfulness, says Thich Nhat Hanh, translating the teachings of the Buddha, is the most wonderful way for beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of compassion and liberation, realize healing and awakening. And this is the establishment of mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of the mind, of relations with one another, of the the dance of life, of the Dharma. The body. Hmm. Especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed on the quick amelioration of symptoms short-term work and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within people, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us to be whole. And so there's something about attention that brings healing and respect into the body. And so we sit and we feel our breath, and then the Buddha's teachings of mindfulness invite us through the breath to actually feel the mystery of life pulsing in us. It's not just the breath, but it's the sensations that make up the body, and the pains and the pleasure of the body. And sometimes we're afraid of the pains. The pain comes, we push it away, and the pleasure we want it, or some people are afraid of the pleasure of their body. And what does it mean to sit with respect for your body? to eat, to slow down and take a bite of food, or before you do say, what does my body really want? Because, you know, there's a great book in the bookstore from my friend Janine Roth where she writes about feeding the hungry heart, you know, where we do this mysterious thing of putting dead plants and animals into this hole at the end of this body and glugging it down the tube automatically. So bizarre, right? But what if you paid attention? more carefully. What does the body want? When is it hungry? What would serve us? Or you sit quietly and you're minding your own business and you're feeling your breath and your shoulders hurt. Your back starts to hurt and your jaw feels tight. Think, am I meditating wrong? No. It's your body saying, hey, remember me? 
You know, you've been running me around all this time, and now I'm exhausted. Or all the time that you get tight, you tighten your jaw, you squeeze your shoulders, you, you know. And now that you're finally sitting and listening to me, I'm saying, ah, here it is. Bring your attention to me, to this body, and let things soften and open and release and be held in a kind attention in a different way. How do you touch your body? You know, what do you do with it? I interviewed all these spiritual teachers some years ago for this book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, and I remember interviewing this one well-known Catholic meditation teacher who'd been a priest, and he said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church, it was worse. I hated to deal with my body. You know, that poem from Eduardo Galeano where he writes, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. The marketplace says body is a good business. And the body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) But the church, it got worse. The church hated the body, and I hated to deal with it. So I lived on coffee and then on scotch. And gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith got past all that junk about sin and body and church, and my practice became... Do not torment yourself or others. Do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned to a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning and the care for my body is where I start. It's poignant how simple love begins. So it's really the first foundation of mindfulness and of healing. Not that you're supposed to do anything in particular, but that there's a gift of your human body. And it asks for attention, and in attending to it, there comes a kind of fearlessness, because you can feel the measure of pain and the measure of love and joy and all the things that are in you, and value it and treasure it, and be unafraid of it in some way. Tamara Engel, I read this often from her, a friend who died of cancer. My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, which it does, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness and courage a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me even now as I face my death. And so you sit and it itches or you feel bored or lonely or whatever. Be bored. It's fine. Be the first person to die of boredom at Spirit Rock (laughs) this year. Because otherwise you go home and you're bored and what do you do? You open the refrigerator, right? I know what you do. You know, go into something. Because you can't be with yourself, or you're too lonely. So sit and just, okay, you bow to it. Bored, bored, I feel like I'm dying, dying, dying. <laughs> Gee, I wonder if they're going to have cookies left at break. Oh yeah, thinking, planning, planning, you know. The mind has no pride, right? And you learn that you can be present for th- this life. 
the life of the body in this compassionate and present way. And both it brings you a place of wisdom and graciousness, but it also brings you freedom like Tamara wrote about, because you're not so afraid then to experience bodily life, which for some reason you were incarnated to do, so you might as well take the ride, you know? You signed up. And as you come in touch with your own body, it opens a kind of gateway to love. Um, my good friend Frank Ostaseski, who started the Zen Center Hospice, um, he was asked to help Bill Moyers uh, a few years ago when Bill did a television series called On Our Own Terms about hospice work and people dying at home. And Bill was worried because the young camera crew, the lighting people, makeup, you know, the sound people and so forth, they were mostly young folks who'd never been around people who were dying. And it's such a mysterious thing to be. So they called Frank in and he sat and talked about what it was like to enter a hospice and how you sat with people who were dying without expectation. They, you know, some would weep and some would laugh and some were at peace and some were afraid. And you had to just be present for them, not with your agenda. And he talked about it and what it meant to be in the face of that mystery. And then he passed out photos, these beautiful 10 by 12 black and white photos that a great photographer had taken at the hospice of people who were dying there, who had died. And he gave one to each person, talked a little about each person to them, gave them name, and said, look at this person as if you were going to be sitting with them. And they did for a while. And then he asked them to pass the pictures to the right so that others could see the photos. And nobody wanted to pass their picture on because they'd already fallen in love with the person in that picture. They'd looked into their eyes because they were those kind of pictures where people have those deep eyes of presence. And all it took was just to sit with that kind of presence and realize, oh, this is another human being. So when we learn to be mindful of the body and care for it, we also connect with the love that we have for ourselves, for one another, and the love for the world, because it's not just our body, but our body is made of the body of the earth. You know, and every strawberry we eat or piece of lettuce was picked by somebody with a bandana on and kneeling in the hot sun and driven by a trucker and, you know, watered by the water that comes down from... Hetchy Reservoir, or, you know, the Central Canal, or Peripheral Canal, whatever it is, and, you know, the earth that was churned by the earthworms and the ants and the rain that we get in the winters in California, and it's all in that bite of strawberry. Um, and when you begin to pay attention then, it's not just your own body, but it's the body of the earth that you feel and sense. Rachel Carlson, one of the original environmentalists, she writes, if I had influence with the good fairy who presides over the birth of all children, I should ask one thing, that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout their life. So to listen to the trees or the stream or the salmon or, you know, to the news 
and see what is happening to the frogs of the earth or the whales or whatever it is. And not just the signature species, but really to the earth that we live on. That too is your body. And it's not overwhelming or, you know, terrifying. Those things come. But my friend Wes Nisker went up and did an interview recently with Gary Snyder, the great poet and environmentalist from back in the, you know, in the sixth or the last half a century, talking about the fate of the earth and the forests and whales and so forth. And he said, Gary, who's now like 84 or 85, what advice do you have for people, you know, with the kind of environmental dilemmas that we live with now and earth? And the first thing Gary said is, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty because that doesn't help. Instead, he said, love the earth. Go walk in the forest. Go, you know, walk by the ocean. Care for it because it's your garden. It's not about guilt. It's about joy. It's about celebration. It's about listening to it. Does this make sense? And that frees you. And in the same way that you can listen to the body, mindfulness of the breath and body and the earth body, so there is a healing that comes in mindfulness of feelings and emotions. The most difficult part of the sorcerer's way, writes Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda, is to realize that the world is a feeling. Well, there's a kind of mysterious statement, huh? I'll let you meditate on that for a while. But Justice William O. Douglas put it this way. He said that it's at the Supreme Court level where I work. He said 90% of our decisions are made on the basis of feelings. The other 10% is the rational mind that's used to justify our feelings in those decisions. <laughs> that's the way it works, isn't it? Feelings lead us in some profound fashion. And of course, we have this bizarre thing happening in our culture. I was talking to a friend who lives in Buenos Aires, and she said, you know, I come here, and almost everybody I know, she's, you know, in her maybe late 50s, she said, all the, almost all the women I know, most of the men I know, they're all on antidepressants. <laughs> they're all taking some kind of medication. <laughs> Not all, but an awful lot of them. She said, it's really strange. And here's the, the Wall Street Journal, not many months ago, so, so young and so many pills. And it talks about how, um, a third of kids in the U.S. are taking prescription medication on a regular basis for ADHD and antidepressants, antipsychotics, asthma medication, antihypertensives, sleep aids, and it just lists the numbers. That's, that's crazy. So what does it mean to actually feel? It's hard to feel in some ways because they're things that we then have to bear. Um, and to begin to pay attention instead of taking an antidepressant. Rilke, the great poet, was depressed and couldn't write for almost a year. He had writer's block and he was depressed and he went to visit his friend Rodin in Paris who was a great sculptor, another famous artist of this era, and said, what should I do? What should I do? And Rodin said, I can help you cure your depression. What should I do? He said, I want you to go to the zoo every day for a year and just sit there and watch the animals. And he did. 
wrote, uh, and Rilke went to the zoo, and after about six months, he started to write this extraordinary series of poems about the leopard and the monkey and things, because what happened is he became again connected with the mystery of life. So feelings. We don't even know what we feel very often. I have a list somewhere, I copied part of it, of 500 feelings. Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, anguished, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, aversive, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, anxious, appreciative, argumentative, adamant, addled, amazed, blissful, bonkers, brokenhearted, bored, bad, belligerent, brave, bottled up, bouncy, buoyant, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, contracted, concentrated, curious, crestfallen, cheerful, concerned, defiant, deliberate. I mean, come on. It's a wild in there. It is. C.S. Lewis writes of a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. I mean, it's, you know, a zoo in there, right? And to become mindful is to become aware of the great sweep of emotions and feelings that make up our life, which we're often unconscious of, and so we're not so free. And some of the attention then brings healing because you let yourself grieve. You sit quietly for a little bit and the heart brings to your service. You know, like some waiter in a, or in a five-star restaurant places on your plate the unfinished business of your heart. That argument, that regret, that longing, that creative impulse. All you have to do is sit quietly and listen. And it says, here, how about that? You know? And in that attention, that unfinished grief, you weep your tears. And my teacher Ajahn Chah said, if you haven't wept deeply, you probably haven't learned to meditate very much yet. Because it's one part of it. If you haven't laughed, you haven't learned to meditate either. I mean, people go to hear the Dalai Lama mostly because they want to hear him laugh. He has this amazing, joyful, happy laugh. And so to pay attention, to listen in a healing way to feelings like the body is to allow our full humanity. And as the Sufis say, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the sorrows of the world in her heart, you are sharing a certain measure of that cosmic pain and are called upon to meet it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. And so you get to be with what's difficult and also what's beautiful, your longings, your creativity, your love, all of that. And meditation makes space for it. The Buddha said, if you put a spoonful of salt in a cup of water, it tastes salty. But if you put that same spoonful of salt in a lake, the water is pure and clear again. Make your mind like the lake or the sky that can allow the tears and the joy and the and the fear and confusion and all of that, as if you can bow to it. We did tonight, yes, this too. And you sit like the Bodhisattva of Compassion and the Buddha and say yes. And then you have a kind of freedom to decide which feelings to act on and what to respond to. The heart becomes free. 
or the healing of the mind. I mean, we have so many stories that we tell. The mind is basically a storytelling, what would you call it? Storytelling instrument? That's being charitable. It's actually more, as I like to say, like you're in a Motel 6 room late at night and the TV is stuck on some, you know, shopping channel with reruns, right? And the remote doesn't work and you can't turn it off because 95% of your thoughts are reruns. Notice it. You have thought those suckers before, right? And they keep coming back. And it has no pride at all. It just keeps telling the stories about you, you know. And then you believe them. Okay. When my daughter was in first grade, we took a trip to California to visit my parents. While we were there, she lost a tooth. She ran into the kitchen to show me and asked if the tooth fairy could fly this far all the way from New York. My mom shot me a look of concern and later suggested that by indulging in such fantasies, I was teaching my child not to trust adults. Wasn't she going to feel betrayed when she found out the truth? I pointed out that my mother hadn't seemed to have a problem with the tooth fairy when I was growing up. (laughs) But the next time my daughter lost a tooth, she fidgeted with excitement as I put her to bed. How does the tooth fairy get in, she asked. Through the window, I explained. Shouldn't we unlock it then? I'll do that right before I go to bed, I replied. Why does the tooth fairy want everybody's teeth, she asked. I took a deep breath and considered my mother's advice. My daughter would soon figure out the truth anyway. So I told my seven-year-old inquisitive daughter that, in fact, I was the tooth fairy. She cried hard. I apologized and explained that she was getting to an age at which it was more important for me to be honest with her than to play imaginary games. We cuddled for a while, and she stopped crying. She had one last question. What do you wear? (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, this is how we live. The mind is an instrument of imagination. And it's fabulous and it's beautiful. But also, as the Buddha said, who is your enemy? The mind is your enemy. No one can harm you more than your own mind, unaware. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can help you more than your own mind, conscious, mindful, compassionate. Not even your closest friend or your loving family. So to become, to listen again, and we started with that story of what if everyone out and went out in the parks under the moonlight and told their stories? What if the vets who are coming back had somebody to welcome them and say, we will listen to whatever story you have to tell and welcome you back in our hearts? What does it mean to listen to our own mind? Sometimes you see how judgmental it is. They wouldn't hire you to be a judge in a civilized country, you know. And then what do you do? You say, stop judging. I hate that judgment. No more judging. I hate, no, you know, I don't want to judge. Really. Judging so bad. (laughs) But what's that, right? It's more judgment. So you just bow and you say, oh, judging mind, thank you for your opinion, you know. Thank you for that. 
or you see the lusting mind or the joyful mind or the contracted mind or the expansive mind. And then there's an amazing thing that happens. When you go and look in the mirror, you notice you age, right? Come on, it's true, right? But the weird thing is that you don't necessarily feel older. And that's because it's only your body that's aged. But that awareness that's looking is saying, hmm, lost some more fur here and a little grayer there, you know, drooping over there, whatever, whatever you're noticing, right? Um, but you know when you look in the mirror in that mysterious moment of looking that the body isn't who you are. Who you are is the witnessing, is the consciousness itself. Who do you think was born into this body? Who do you think will leave it if you have the the honor of being with someone in a conscious death? There's that moment when they're there with you and then they take their last breath and spirit is gone. And the body is just meat. You know, that's what it is. Ready to go to the freezer or the, you know, the oven. I mean, that's what it is. One of my Zen master teachers used to say, you know, if you were worried about things, he said, don't worry, soon dead, is what he would say. You know, get with it, right? It's mysterious. So do you take your thoughts seriously? I hope not. You know, the healing that comes is to listen to the mind and then you can choose. These are healthy thoughts. These are thoughts worth using because the mind is a beautiful instrument. It's a terrible master, but a good servant. So you don't need most of them. You could go with 5% of it and there'd be plenty to do the things you need to do. Um, But to be able to become the witness, the loving witness of body, of feelings, of the thoughts themselves, is really what meditation trains you to do. And then you find a place that's liberated and spacious and compassionate. Because all that programming is in there. You know, and some of it's healthy and some of it's painful. And you can just see it. I mean, and you have all these identities that come, all these stories about who you are. And instead, you rest in the timeless. Instead of resting in the stories about things, you're actually here in the present with this person and that one and that tree and that dog and that, you know, sunset. Because that's all you have, is the mysterious present, ever. This is it. And you can either be awake or asleep. And to listen then brings healing and connection and beauty and more suffering. But you do it with some panache. Some dignity. You do, you know, because if you look at people you respect, Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of prison, or Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, 17 years of house arrest, coming out with such graciousness and dignity, that spirit is in you. And that's really what meditation teaches you to return to. Mindfulness of the body and the body of the earth, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind itself, all healing. Mindfulness of the Dharma, of the laws that govern all things. Things are in change. If you hold on, you can hold on. Then you get rope burn, right? 
because it's changing. So the Buddha says, all right, you can hold on or you can let go. It's up to you. Um, But this is how it works. Things are born anew all the time. And each moment, it's like a river. The mind is a river. The feelings are a river of thoughts. What you are is a river. Actually, you're five rivers in one description. River of sensations and body experiences, river of feelings, river of perceptions, the way you see things, river of thoughts, and then the river of consciousness. So to see wisely, you begin to see through the kind of fear and security and holding on and realize that you can relax. It's called the wisdom of insecurity. You know, my teacher Ajahn Chah used to ask us different kind of questions or people would come and lay out their dilemmas for him and say, what should I do? And he would often kind of lean back and smile and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? (laughs) Say, well, what, you know, what about wisdom? And he'd say, that's uncertain, isn't it? What about enlightenment? It's uncertain, isn't it? And he loved that word uncertain. He said, as you get wiser, you get more uncertain. How's that? You get more comfortable with uncertainty. Because it's true. And in the, in the mindfulness of Dharma, of the way things are, things are ever-changing, you can't possess them. You can care for them and treasure them and own them in the way you own a car. You rent it, you care for your body, but you don't really own anything. You can love it. But if you have children and you try and possess them, see if they like it. Give your program how they're supposed to be and control them. They don't like it very much. They want to be loved, dedicated to, or a lover, or a partner, or you know, a plot of land, or a part of the earth. That's called dedication and care and attention. But it's not holding on. And so you learn as you see the laws of life, the wisdom and compassion that sees this is human incarnation. And how do we live from our Buddha knowing, from this place of spaciousness, of gracious attention, of a healing that only compassion and forgiveness can bring, and love. And there's this kind of freedom that comes when we do it. A poem from William Stafford, great American poet, He writes, this is the field where the battle did not happen, where the unknown soldier did not die. This is the field where grass joined hands, where no monument stands, and the only heroic thing is the sky. Birds fly here without any sound, unfolding their wings across the open. No people killed or were killed on this ground, hallowed by neglect, and an air so tame that people celebrate it by forgetting its name. William Stafford, who was one of our great poets, was a conscientious objector in World War II. Grew up partly Native American, and he said, I will not go to war. I will not do it. And so this is the honoring of Memorial Day. This is the field where the battle didn't happen, where no one died. Imagine that. And somehow to make yourself that field. Because in each of us is a longing for wholeness 
and connection and finding a way not to be in battle with the world, but to move with graciousness, to live as the Buddha that you are, as the one who knows, as the wise one that you carry. To meditate is an invitation to come back to that, to remember it each day, to find your center and your forgiveness and your compassion, and to bring it to the world that so deeply needs it. And as Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And I recite this often because it it captures something so simple and true. You are that person on the boat. This is your boat, baby. It is. And you get to be that person. Um, And it's a blessing. It's a blessing. And do that which nourishes that centeredness and that stillness and that compassion and that steadiness and the gracious heart that you have. So let's sit for a moment. And return to that still point, that center in your own heart of wisdom and love or compassion that you carry always, even though you may forget at times. And let it, let it be a candle that you carry into the world. So I want to thank you for your kind attention, your generosity. Katie, did you want to do that drawing? Are you here? Maybe not. Oh yeah, she's rushing in. Okay, it got really warm in here too. We need to open the, turn on the fan. Are the skylights open? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.